Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape during week 96 of quarantine from my eight-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the smog-shrouded urban sprawl of the City of Angels. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a music journalist whose work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Pitchfork, and many more. The subject of our conversation today is his latest book, Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. Hello and welcome, Michelangelo Matos. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for accommodating me on, on relatively short notice. As you know, I've had my hands on a PDF of your book for some time, and I've been anxiously looking forward to discussing it with you. You have a great story to tell, and you have told it very, very well and engagingly, laying it out chronologically, so you're kind of right back there in the year of 1984. I was a little bit surprised. Now, we all kind of jump to stereotypical conclusions about people, knowing that you are um, a music writer of some esteem as we all know serious music types have traditionally not taken 80s pop music very seriously now has that changed more in the overall critical eye in in the in the last few years more than i realize or are you an outlier no i'm not an outlier it's that it absolutely has uh changed in esteem um i mean Pitchfork, and for example, is you know they they recently did maybe a few years ago their best albums of the '80s, and that's a very pop and R&B heavy list. And it's not very rock. A lot of a lot of albums that were once staples of those sorts of lists were not on there. You know, during the '80s, it seems like a lot of rock critics had a very refusal a refusal toward pop. Not all of them, but a fair number. And there is less and less and less of that now in general. So musically, I don't I don't know. I have highbrow and lowbrow taste. I'm the kind of guy when it comes to food, I can get into I can get excited about a Michelin star restaurant. I can also get very excited about a bag of Doritos. So I've never been conflicted about enjoying Swing Out Sister. You know, I also love the Smiths. Well, I hate Swing Out Sister. I know we're, <laughs> we're going to get into your late 80s thing. See, that's and, and you know, one man's one man's uh trash, right? But uh, so I you know, I was in radio for a long time and I um, I had a boss in radio, an old school radio guy who basically said all the entire 80s channel that you might listen to you could basically consider all of those novelty records and when we talk about paula abdul i get his angle but obviously i don't agree with that and i gather that you don't either before we oh, talk no. about before we talk about the book what is your and what has your personal relationship with 80s pop been like throughout your music listening career can i ask how old you are because that obviously informs I'm 45 this. i was nine years old in 1984 okay so uh, we're essentially the same age all right so, but he, but um, that novelty records thing, I, I know exactly what he means and yes. I know exactly what you mean. Um, it's a novel, th those were considered novelty records because at that point, synthesizers and drum machines and big production were considered novelties. They were not considered the mean of pop. They were not considered the basic building blocks of pop and now they are. 
I mean, it isn't just now. They've been that since the 80s. A lot of that stuff was considered novelties by, like, old guard radio dudes who were waiting for the Beatles to happen again. And that's kind of been the crutch forever with old guard or, or older rock fans. Their tastes got formed by a specific style of playing and singing and record making that went south. You know, it, I mean, it didn't die out because nothing really dies out. Like all of, you know, you still have all sorts of music being made. It's just that that didn't, that hasn't been the center of pop for a really long time. And the eighties are the, sh are where it shifts. You point out in the forward of the book that there are, many, many other books about what would have to be considered the fringes of 80s music. I can't imagine how many books have been written about, say, hardcore punk in the early 80s, and yet there have been, have been few to none about the mainstream, the bread and butter of what was actually moving units and resonating with the culture. Why do you think it took you to write a book, a serious book about 1984 pop music? because number well i i really couldn't tell you why anybody else doesn't sure um i can tell you that when i first had this idea and i had i wrote a proposal in 2010 the answer i got a lot was well i don't know people like why aren't there cool bands like the pixies and it was all and it's like uh so i guess my answer is that the book world is full of old college rock radio DJs with narrow taste who don't think that anybody wants to read about pop music because they don't want to read about pop music. Right. Enough time has passed now that it almost doesn't even matter whether you care for the music. You you can no longer argue. And the Pixies are, I mean, Doolittle's, I would, I've said before on the show, my favorite album, I think it'll always be my favorite album I've ever heard, but to insist that uh, to pick one name out of a thousand from well, 1984, Col Culture Club are not a significant part well, of the story of, 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 of the history well, of popular music is crazy. It misses the point entirely because the Pixies don't emerge until 1986. Well, there's that too, sure. And the landscape changes between 1984 and 1986. And for, a, I mean, the pop landscape and the indie landscape, all of that changes. The thing that people, the, the big 80s-ing of pop or the big, you know what I mean? The the thing that you were just talking about, the the idea that the 80s were just novelty hits is insidious and stupid, but it's ingrained because, I mean, because, you know, the because the boomers were having a completely unheroic epoch. And, and you know, because most rock histories portray those guys as, as heroic. And this was an un, completely unheroic, period for them but the pixies just was yeah, i mean that example and it is a real example what well, you know that's just tone deaf the whole, but I, as i was ex i was discussing this actually while i was writing the book with my friend tom erlewine a great critic sure absolutely for, all music <laughs> etc yeah absolutely great, yeah great writer we were we were saying the 80s have three distinct parts. It's just like the 60s, the early 80s, the mid 80s, the late 80s. They're all distinct from each other in terms of what's popular and how they're popular. And it's also how, you know, pop changes completely through those through those periods. To I mean, the early part of the 80s, pop radio was just, it was air supply and almost nothing else. 
There was no black music on it, hardly. It was just like the worst possible. It was as bad as the early 50s. And I've listened to a lot of early 50s pop, and I can tell you, the, 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 like, that stuff sucks for the most part. The stuff that rock and roll kind of came in against deserved it because it was trash. Like, you really don't want to spend your time listening to how much that is that Doggy in the Window by Patty Page. And the same, the same, frankly, is true of a lot of that early 80s, like, mush pop. Oh, yeah. Really, the, the really, really bad music. Yeah, the really saccharine stuff. And, yeah, the 80s were, I'm, I'm a massive 80s fan. Of I mean, it. Journey, too. Well, Journey, obviously, I think most would argue, and I'd be among them, that they that they that they had their moments, but they also weren't afraid of of plucking the the low hung, hanging fruit musically. But I, I find that they the only plucked the low hanging fruit. Obviously, some of us who have dabbled in cocaine have enjoyed "Don't Stop Believing." If there's a right time and a right place for that song, but the. The 80s to me, they're, to your point, they were just sort of like perfectly centered because it's just such a perfect decade of peak 80s. My wife and I have had a joke for years that we'll put on a movie to, that we want to rewatch and we go, it's going to be from 1985. I don't even need to ask. 85 is when the 80s-ness of the, the perfection of what was going on, the zeitgeist found its final form and you're finding it's 1984 with music it's not it's not a big enough difference to quibble over but you go back and listen to pop music that was charting in in 1980 1981 you know you have some disco over disco holdovers you have the urban cowboy kind of stuff that's happening and by the end of the decade you do have paul abdul you have escape club and we're and 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 hair and, and, and hair metal and hair you know just ripping off Elvis Costello and still not being any good and and we're basically as a culture begging for Nirvana but right there in the middle you have this sweet spot where it's 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 finding its stride and obviously in the book you make the case for 1984 being the watershed year the right. sheer number of artists who were in their prime or enjoying a second prime is is just staggering. The hair metal thing yeah. is taking off uh, a, a, alone. I mean, I, we could spend an hour just naming the people you talk about in the book, but make the case to people who have not read your book for why is 1984 the year? Uh, you know, 84 was just, uh, it wasn't, I mean, what made this to me seem like a book wasn't simply that there were a lot of good records or that they had a salutary cultural effect. It was that there was so much action happening on all fronts. It wasn't simply that the radio was great for the first, I mean, it was. It had started becoming great again around 83, mm -hmm. late 82 to 83. Agreed. It was also that the technological changes going on were, you know, very far reaching and are still far reaching, you know, the, well, yeah, what made it a book wasn't simply the records. It was the whole atmosphere of, I guess, competitive, you know, friendly competition, maybe like every, it seemed like people were really trying hard to outdo each other. There was a real like sense of possibility in the atmosphere, just from all the stuff I was reading about it and from the records, but a sense that like, to have a big, great hit single was the best thing an art, a, a music, uh, you know, a pop musician could do. Then Michael Jackson hits, Thriller hits. And Michael, I mean, it's important to remember, Michael Jackson had been a superstar already. Uh, Off the Wall had sold like seven million copies right as the record business was hitting the dirt. It wasn't, a, you know, it wasn't like, nobody thought 
Michael Jackson wasn't going to have a big hit with Thriller. Everybody knew he was going to go through the roof with Thriller, but th the size of the roof had shrunk so much in the in 80, 81, 82, 80, and then he expanded the size of the roof by himself. Suddenly, everybody was selling lots of records. I think that's where the competition comes from. A lot of these people, you have Prince and Bruce Springsteen, Michael Jackson, Cyndi Lauper, Tina Turner, though, um, Madonna. Who am I? Madonna, yes. But I'm also, I'm trying to think specific. Oh, yes, Lionel Richie. I was trying to think of the people that were nominated for the Grammy in 1985, which is when they give the award out. Right. Covers uh, late 83 and most of 84. The Springsteen's, so it's the, the albums nominated for uh, the Grammy for Album of the Year are Born in the USA, Purple Rain, to Private Dancer, She's So Unusual and Can't Slow Down. And Lionel Richie wins. And all of those are superb albums, like every single one of them. Between them, there's a couple dozen big hits. That's what changed in that period. And that's what made it really interesting and vibrant and like from a marketplace perspective. And I, and I think that's why it hasn't been written about before in, a, in some ways, because it's not just these are great records. It's the market is changing in interesting ways that will define how music goes for the next 30 years. One of the things that I really enjoyed about your book, and man, I, I crammed in in every available moment between when you agreed to come by and me speaking to you now. I, I read absolutely as many pages as I could. It's a, it's a long book, sure. and I made it through about a quarter of it. I want to talk to you about everything that I've read, but the the part of the experience of reading it that I really enjoy is because you handle things chronologically. It kind of puts you back in those things, things that are now, you know, frozen as VH1 recycled memories. It feels like you're, you're seeing them again for the first time, and that a that applies to no one so much as Michael Jackson, because I don't really even have a question for you, but just to go back and with the books prompting to go look at that performance of Billie Jean at the Motown 25th anniversary awards and to see this is somebody who's, well, first of all, this is somebody who's handsome. If he had just stopped, then he could have been a handsome pop star. And this is somebody who is the most dynamic pop performer who probably will ever live just in terms of sheer stage presence it's just so amazing to remember what prime michael jackson was like when you could just enjoy prime michael jackson sure yeah so just have a bunch of random observations that are all taken straight out of your book that i just wanted to run past you and chew on a little bit it it occurs to me that a number of the British acts that broke, the very flamboyant, the not so much Duran Duran to the point that I'm about to make, but the culture clubs and stuff, they came out of punk. And I've, I've repeated this point a trillion times, and I'm going to make it again. Uh, John Lydon told me personally he was disappointed that everybody in punk, there's still people who look like him and Sid Vicious. The whole idea was to do something nobody else in the room was doing. And so to repeat what he did in 77 is completely missed the spirit of what his image was. And I have understood this wave of early 80s bands. So many of them came out of the punk scene, were there on the ground floor of the original first wave of stuff that they said, okay, that's already been done. Three chords and a needle sticking out of your arm has been done. What's a different thing that we can do? That was punk in its own way even if you were trying to write big singles even if you were trying to sell records what strikes me in looking back at the stuff and reading your book is that you have what amounts to a second wave of british punk that's a bunch of bands that want to make radio singles 
Whereas in America, the second wave of punk is people who choose to be as, as unmelodic and, and as uncompromising as they can possibly be. It's just funny that you have the... the, so, so the which the, aspect of American punk are you referring to? Hardcore? Yeah, exactly. That, that, oh. that, that uh, you know, the Ramones beget the Minutemen and sure. the Sex Pistols beget right. Culture Club. Sure. Punk never had a pop moment in America until way later. There was, like, you had Blondie and Talking Heads and you had bands from the punk scene that made hit records in America, but they weren't necessarily considered... I mean, they were considered part of rock, I think, more than anything. New Wave in America, because it became called New Wave specifically uh, in the late 70s, because punk scared people. People thought that, you know, people figured that punk meant, you know, you were going to get stabbed at a concert. That's what people thought punk was. So you, so punk was run away from in a great sense. In, in mainstream terms. So for American, you know, the, by 84, the remnants of the post-punk club scene, the, the blitz scene, which is where, you know, where Culture Club and Spandau Ballet and a few other bands were sired. Uh, and Duran Duran was in a different club in a different part of Britain, but they, but it was a similar scene. And the club, you know, club culture was the place that commingled the bands and the DJs and the, you know, the, the kids who wanted something different from the mainstream were, you know, they went out to punk, to rock discos. And a lot of the British bands that you're talking about come from a similar trajectory. So I think, so I think the, the, I think the big difference is that DJ music and DJ culture are where, you know, I think that makes the difference after the original punk wave in both America and the UK. Another, I, I can't believe how much I'm bringing up uh, culture club, as I <laughs> mentioned the book. I mean, they were a big, big, big part of the book. They, they are. And another thing that just struck me is again, critically, and you're telling me, and I absolutely believe you that this has largely shifted in more recent years, but when, 80s pop has at least traditionally since it was a big thing the first time around been looked at as sort of mindless meaningless it's more of a soundtrack for a music video than actual music looking back at it in terms of the current ongoing culture wars you see just how subversive it was in a way that many of us at least you know in in the suburbs were missing at the time particularly when it comes to sexuality and and gender identity you mentioned how boy george and annie lennox are together on the cover of newsweek one is more gender bending than the other rob halford's on stage in in bondage gear uh the hair metal bands are all cross-dressing and then on top of that you have frankie goes to hollywood you have morrissey to a lesser extent in the mainstream you you have dinner life it's amazing to me that there is and i don't want to punch a straw man because in, to a large extent we've made great progress i think in accepting and you know internalizing and normalizing homosexuality in in our uh culture at least relative to 1984 but it's crazy it's still an ongoing thing to any extent at all and then it took that long when you see how much america was just getting beaten over the head with gay messaging all the way back then and we were inviting it into our homes well well not always i mean the the thing about American indie rock is that a lot of the practitioners were queer mm-hmm. and some of them were out front about it, but many were not. Michael Stipe did not. Michael Stipe and Bob Mould of 
Husker Du did not talk about their sexuality That's until right. the mid night. That's right. And now both of them are very, very, you know, open about it. But at the time, like it was, it was look, it, it, they, it was a matter of safety for them. I'm sure. There's a story in Bob Mould's memoir, which I did not include in the book, about, you know, the Bad Brains went and stayed with Grant Hart of Husker Du, who was also bisexual, and he, they trashed his house, and like left him a left him a nasty note because he was gay. Like they they did not cotton to that. They have since you know changed changed their stance on things. But that was a, that was a real present danger for a lot of working musicians. Um, and there was a very a pronounced difference between how Americans processed that and how the Brits did. Um, in particular, Freddie Mercury. Freddie Mercury never came out during his lifetime. He never once, you know. And I, I, I don't say that critically. But in 84, Queen made the I Want to Be Free video where they're all in drag. They're sending up a UK soap opera called Coronation Street. And it got banned on MTV. They wouldn't play it. And Queen did not have the status in America that they did in Britain at the time. Like that, el that year when they put that album out, I'm forgetting the title now, um, it's not a kind of magic, I don't think. It's, I forget the title. But the Queen album from that year was like a smash in Britain. It had like four hit singles. And I Want to Break Free was like a big, big hit in Britain. And America it basically disappeared. It was like the beginning of their disappearing act. They did not come back into the spotlight until later, until around the time Freddie Mercury died. It was really Freddie Mercury dying. And then don't Wayne's count, don't count out Wayne's World. That's right. Yeah, it was those two things. But I mean, they were they were getting a little more traction as '91 began. But like Freddie dying was like all these people, you know. Up until that point, he, like Freddie Mercury died, and his parents did not know he was queer. They didn't know. Like that's that's really telling. And one other thing, and which is in the book, when Queen performed at Live Aid. MTV cut to an interview with Marilyn McCoo, the co-host of Solid Gold. Queen's performance at Live Aid, as I think we all know, is one of the greatest performances in history. One of the greatest rock performances ever. And MTV had so little investment, thought, it's, that, thought America had so little investment in Queen, and at that point it did, that they cut away from it. You mentioned in the book, and we've touched on this now in talking to each other, how the uh, the 1980s have acquired this this mystique. And for young people today, you say in the book, they they might look at the 1980s the way that the our generation, yours and mine, looked at the 1960s when we mm -hmm. were younger. And it occurred to me that if that is the case, and I'm sure it is, then Bruno Mars is effectively the new Lenny Kravitz. He's this like human. That's a great comparison. He's yeah. this human avatar who will just take anything. Because Lenny Kravitz, it was funny. They go, oh, well, he's just trying to be Jimi Hendrix. And they go, well, yeah, except for when he's doing It Ain't Over Till It's Over. And now he's doing AM hits. He'll take anything from the 1960s. He's Mr. 1960s reincarnate. And that is oh, what Bruno I'm, Mars I'm is. I'm going to sharply disagree with you because it's clear to me that beginning with Mama Said, yeah. the second album, he went straight into the set. Okay, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. And stayed there. But that's funny. That's to me. That's the sign of the times. Is is that's what Lenny Kravitz right. was to oh. us, and that's all Bruno Mars is. 
It's, it's absolutely, I think, I think that's a good observation. And I do think that, you know, it te- we, to understand music history, pop music history, or just, you know, even subcultural music history, the way I do with dance music, you, it, you, knowing it, there's as much to be said about an era by its nostalgia by, as by its new work. Oh, heck yeah. Yeah, a lot to be said. And then the thing with the mid-80s, and this is a big distinction between the mid-80s and the later 80s, you start to get that 60s nostalgia thing that really defines late 80s pop culture. That starts to happen in the mid-80s, specifically with the big chill movie and soundtrack. That's right. The soundtrack was a big hit, and actually... I do mention it at one point, but I had a longer section on soundtrack albums that I ended up having to cut for space. You know, the big, the big chill was this movie about yuppies and yuppies were coming into the fore as well. And I got to explore that a little bit in the talking heads chapter, but the big chill was like all these Motown oldies. And so you start to see that coming in later on. For example, think about stand by me which, you know, the 1960 Ben E. King hit, one of the great records. And it's like just a fabulous record. And it becomes a top 10 again in like 87 because of the movie of the same name that uses it as its theme song. And there's all these like, you know, Twist and Shop becomes a hit because it's in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Suddenly the pop charts are inundated in the late 80s with old records. Like it, it's... It's almost like, I mean, I think of that as the backlash to the 84 crescendo of like new, exciting music by people who want to be current. Maybe I've always, and and you've thought about these things in far greater detail than I have. I've always thought that the revivalism, the, the way that the 50s stuff became cool. I can remember my sister, two years older than me, literally having a a poodle skirt at some point when dirty dancing was big again and all of that. <laughs> I thought that I have come to regard it as there was some sort of dirty secur- dancing. Perfect se- example. Yes. Right. Some, some sort of psychological security blanket that Ronald Reagan put over the culture, even for people who maybe didn't know that they felt that way or, or even agreed with him or even voted right. for him that made the, the, the largely imagined halcyon days of America seem appealing all over again. I give him a lot of credit for that. And I have no idea if I'm right or wrong about that. I don't think you're wrong, but I would also suggest in addition, because there's always, you know, dozens of cross currents in any era. Of course. Writing a book like, which made writing this book pretty hard going at times. I can only imagine. Right. Just, I had a lot of data and, you know, trying to synthesize it into something. It takes time. But the other thing I think was really happening then is people hated what was going on. They hated the present day. And it wasn't just that they hated synthesizers. It was that they hated nonstop Reaganism. I mean, I'm not going to pretend like I don't have a side on this. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty vocally anti-Reagan throughout the book. And I also feel like that was a big feature of it. I think a lot, I mean, I was in junior high in like 87, 88. And I remember a lot of my peers just wanted to not be part of this anymore. And these were kids that loved the same stuff that I loved even a couple of years earlier. I think there's a generational, I think I genuinely do think that for a lot of serious, like people who became in, you know, teenagers in the nineties and got into like more subcultural music, 
And that's sort of the way pop went, was more subcultural. 84 was this big moment where it seemed like the whole pop audience, not every, every single person in the pop audience putatively, was, but like a lot of people were into the, what was on the radio. That was seen as central to the experience of, of new music. Whereas in the, by the 90s, what pop radio played wasn't, didn't feel like the center of anything. It felt like advertising. And then, so, you know, and I feel like a lot of the people that I came up with and became really seriously interested in subculture music had been pop fans as kids during that period. In a way, the later 80s got so target marketed and so tinny sounding. And you, you wanted to rebel against it. It wasn't fun anymore. It was totally formulaic. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm 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 a sucker. I I, <laughs> I even like I even like Ace of Base, but I absolutely get your I like Ace of Base, but that's later. It is, it is, but like to me, that's a good example of the. I have made the case before, and I, if I'd really have to think about it to go to war for this claim I'm about to make, but like maybe the sign is the pop hit of the '90s. It might well be. It's in the conversation. I would argue. Sure. Where where would the sign be if it had been in the '80s? It, there's it just it just gets buried. The pop pop music right. was was just so much more and had so much more personality seemed depth like so much volume, more of an yes. of an event yeah like, like um, good hair depth and volume precisely precisely um, um, I do um, because you brought it up i thought i would share this with you i think you might find this amusing i should do uh the first time i didn't see Dan dirty dancing until i was in my 30s and mm -hmm. the first time i saw dirty dancing i was on acid ah and seeing dirty dancing on lsd all the subtext comes out. Sure, right. It, so, so I really enjoyed that, even though it's a ridiculous movie. Yeah, I'll have to go give that another look. Right around when my sister had that poodle skirt, as the the older sibling, she pretty much swung the hammer when we went to Blockbuster. So we rented Dirty <laughs> Dancing twenty five times. I've seen it. Uh, I've seen it so many times that I'm under the impression that I like it. But that's probably just Stockholm syndrome. I'd have to look at that with uh with with fresh eyes. With fresh eyes, yes. Y you. You talk in the book about a subject that I've discussed on on this show uh, in, in maybe a slightly different way, where disco supposedly dies. We all know there's the kids riding on the street. They have to cancel the second game of the doubleheader at Comiskey Park because disco sucks and disco is dead. And the funny thing is that if you actually are listening to the music that came out in that era, there was a continuous chain of music coming out till at least like 85 or 86. And you might make the case that it never, ever, ever stopped that boy, does that sound more like disco than not? Yeah. Maybe absolutely. you no longer, maybe you no longer literally have the waka chicka, waka chicka guitar going, but you could have easily, it could have been there in she works hard for the money. And it's so funny to me that Donna Summer is the perfect example of the queen of disco who is on the ropes because she is, forever branded as the disco lady keeps making disco and triumphantly manages to get into a form of music that's no longer called disco well but i mean there are i forget which jackson brother said this but i remember seeing a video an interview and it may have been marlon uh it was one of the non-michael jackson brothers talking about how disco was the greatest thing that had happened because it had brought the races together it was black yes. and white and his, and Hispanic. It was everybody was partying together. And this was, yep. and this, of course, in the late 80s and or late 70s. 
And by 80, at least by 81, you literally couldn't call something disco. Now listen, I mean, all you have to do is listen to the very first drum beat of Billie Jean to know what kind of a beat that is. It isn't even, I mean, it's no other kind of beat. The hi-hat and the snare and the kick. That's a disco beat. That is an archetypal disco beat. That is an archetypal disco bass line. And yet nobody in their right mind would have called it. I mean, it's really funny <clears throat> reading the reading the press from the time, watching watching writers, you know, contort themselves not to admit the obvious. You know, this is rock and roll. Really? All those disco records with that exact same drum pattern were, you didn't think they were rock and roll then. Right. Well, and you and I were both there. I don't know about your childhood. We were making fun of disco while we yes. were enjoying yes. songs that in retrospect were disco. The Absolutely. BG, the, Absolutely. Uh, the Doobie well, Brothers were these old creeps who needed to be banished from the pop kingdom forever. Give me more Giorgio Moroder produced singles. It's ludicrous. There was, oh yeah, Mania. For right, right, right. So to to the point that you brought up about the the Jackson sibling, yes, it was so much more about the the, the packaging of disco was what had to go for people to be able to right. embrace the music that clearly they liked because oh. that that was the issue. And look, I'm not tr trying to just you know well. straight up flat out bash the monoculture. I'm I'm a big tent guy. I give people the benefit of the doubt. But when kids no. were out there with their beer trashing Comiskey Park, it was straight white hesher dudes and disco wouldn't have wouldn't have bothered them quite so much if it hadn't been so multicultural and so blatantly gay i mean sylvester right. is sylvester is the only openly gay performer i can think of who had anything like mainstream well, i guess elton john you'd have to include as well but it was so yeah, gay and, for and years we're talking about people you're talking about people who were gay out and gay at the time Right. I thought that Elton had had oh, Elton, himself bisexual well, in the Elton 70s. himself as bisexual in 76, but his right. big hit streak had ended by then. Right. I got you. I got you. So that, that's... So the, actually, the other person is Bowie. That's right. That's right. Bowie called himself bisexual in 77. Right. But, but, he, but he was weird and an alien, so it was okay. It didn't count. The other thing is the anti-disco and generally anti-70s, period, not just disco, anti-70s anything sort of held sway in the media for a really long time and it only becomes dismantled around the time of 1990 or so as the 90s began then the 70s are sort of reclaimed as kitsch it takes a long time for the culture to admit the 70s were good there was really good music in the 70s and some of it was critically derided but some of it was also you know just forgotten about funk you know, That's funk right. and disco. Uh, right. A lot of people in the funk, you know, funk musicians hated disco too. George Clinton made fun of it, even though, but then it, of course he had to make a record of it because everybody had to make a record of disco. Everybody had to make a disco record. It became this, it became imposed on them. And that's oh, really, yeah. that was a big part of the back. Yeah, I've done uh, I've done a whole episode on this show of just artists that you may not have realized crossed over into disco, and it, it goes on for days. Everybody did it. It was it was it, yeah. It was like having a hip hop verse at a certain point. Oh yeah, but at this point, oh yeah, for sure. Like what the one other great thing in, along those lines is in the late eighties, you see all like every age, every strata of R and B performer has to make a new Jack Swing record. That's right. There, there's an Al Green new Jack Swing record. 
Of course. Smokey Robinson, New Jack swing record. <laughs> yeah, sometimes sometimes you're, you're only one man. You can't fight it. Uh, I, I have a couple more questions I want to yeah, get through with you. Uh, in the book, you mention an A&R guy, a record label guy, telling Billboard magazine that Motley Crue were the musical equivalent of Porky's. That is to say, they could sell Motley Crue <laughs> in the same way that they could sell porkies i wonder i guess i guess two part what are you what what were and are your personal thoughts on hair metal and has hair metal enjoyed any sort of critical rehabilitation in the last few years that i'm not aware of the second answer is yes you know i not that i have any specific examples but hair metal has always had its adherence in the critical world and both the pop world like it's pretty undeniable at this point how that whether or not, like, I hate Bon Jovi. Sure. I never want to listen to Bon Jovi. Okay. But, like, somebody recently pointed out, Living on a Prayer is the most popular record of the last four decades, pretty much. It's pretty much the most popular, most requested song of its time. So you can't argue with those numbers. Um, well, but you were just arguing with "Don't Stop Believing," and to me, oh, those, sure, are mus- those, sure. are, those are those are those are mu- they're musical I, cousins. I won't argue me. with its numbers. I'll argue with the record anytime. I'm the exact same for Bon Jovi. Um, that stuff was always huge. It was just prom, you know, it was prom songs. Uh, it was it, you're never going to go broke with prom songs, at least big ones. So I'm not a big I'm not a big fan of that stuff. But I mean, one of the things about writing that chapter, and it was a fun chapter to write. But, I'm sure. But it was also, you know, I had to I had to listen to a lot of music I wasn't familiar with, and I learned a lot. Um, I learned how great early Metallica is. I hadn't really I hadn't realized how good the early stuff was because I grew up in the Midwest and I was surrounded by Hesher's. I grew up in a suburban in suburban Minneapolis, and I've been seeing I saw like multiple Metallica T-shirts a day starting in like sixth grade. Yeah. So I was just always skeptical of it, and I knew like justice beyond and justice and beyond, and you know, and justice for all is just a really weird sounding record. It just isn't well produced. No. So I, I must have just thought, oh, the early records must not be well produced either. They're better produced than that, and God, they're great. The first two records are fantastic. So that was a that was a wonderful thing to learn. It was like, oh, cool. I like these guys. I I get these guys now. And I got a lot more metal, like metal metal, not like hair metal, uh, than I would have uh, even a few years earlier. You know, I learned to appreciate a lot more about Judas Priest than I had. Yeah, I think with a lot of that stuff, if you look at it as, you know, bands have their bread and butter, which is, you know, melody and tunes and musicality, and then they have their flair on top of it. Like the case that I always make for The Doors is The Doors are pretty awful if you actually take Jim Morrison seriously, but if you just look at him the same way that I look at David Lee Roth, which is here's a band that needed some flair, and look at what this clown came up with, well, then all of a sudden they become really, really, really fun because they're just this singular pop band and but, and, that, and that's the best way for me to look at a lot of the hair metal stuff is look at them as pop as pop songs and then look at the other stuff as the the way that they augmented and amplified the tunes well you can't not look at them that way because that's because for one thing most of the most of the later sunset strip brigade is essentially pop bands who adopt the trappings of metal that's so right. that they can sell and bon jovi is really where that starts 
Um, you know, 84, which something I thought about including in the book but wound up cutting, was Poison, I believe, moved from Pittsburgh to the Sunset, to L.A. that year that, to, yeah. to get their career going. And that, to me, like, as much as anything, that's a good marker for, you know, pop, where, where hair metal becomes its own category. But but by like eighty nine ninety, you have like White Lion. My God, you know, like Fire Firehouse, Love of a Lifetime. You remember that one from ninety one? Yeah, no, no. The ballad the ballads were were embarrassing even at the time. But Don't Treat Me Bad is is a glorious little pop confection that would have been great if it had just been the Bay City Rollers twenty years twenty years earlier. That's what they were. These bands were the Bay City Rollers, precisely. Right, right, right. No, you, you don't. You don't realize who you're talking to. I listen to hair metal bands from 1993 who are still making de- who are still making demos when when Mudhoney had signed with a major label. Well, I, I mean, I know plenty of people who do that. <laughs> Lots of people. Good well, friends. I, I didn't get to include the Scorpions either, and I had stuff on the Scorpions, and it tied in with um, this is Spinal Tap. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah. A, a friend of mine was a publicist for a very brief period of time for the uh, Scorpions in the '90s, and she took them around for a press day in New York City, and it was 103 degrees, and they got in and out of the the limousine. Nobody ever took off. Uh, obviously, didn't take off their leather pants, but also didn't take off the leather hats and the leather jackets, and she just sat there watching the Scorpions sweat because wearing that stuff in 1995 was more important to them than being comfortable. So there, there's the Scorpions for you. The Scorpions, what a what a unit. Yep. Um, so uh, Weird Al comes up in yes. the book, and you can't tell oh the story of the eights without him. And personal, and you you name drop, and I, I'm sure it wasn't a coincidence. A personal favorite of mine. I'll take King of Suede over King of Pain any day. I think it's, <laughs> it has all all the pathos of the original plus jokes. I mean, it's just it's an incredible. It's a tour de force. And <laughs> something struck me recently because now my kids, I have an eight year old and a two year old, and they're asking for Weird Al songs in the car. Is he outlasted all of them? Everybody that he was parodying in the 80s, none of them could, could buy a hit song. Madonna would sell her, all of her children to have one more minor hit, and she can't get one. Weird Al is the, is the last man standing from the 80s. Good jokes are timeless. I guess so. And, uh, oh, I, just a tiny little fact that you pointed out. Did the Ramones really tour in a van the entire time? Yes. yes. Why? They hated each other. Why'd they do that to themselves? Because they couldn't afford anything else. I mean, really? Even at the very end? No, not at the very end. They they were broke. They were like penniless, I'm sure. You know what? I shouldn't say that because I haven't looked at their ledgers. But, I mean, there's no other reason to do it. They weren't doing it for... I'm sure that they were making decent money and it was a more, you know, it was convenient probably for them to do it that way because it was just cheaper. And I'm sure that, like, they got used to it. Long silences in the van probably didn't phase them by the end. But, <laughs> have you, but have you seen End of the Century, the documentary? That's where I learned that. No, I haven't. I'm just thinking of... It's a really I, amazing piece of filmmaking. And yeah, it really I would, I would, dives into their, to their internecine feuds. And do you know what? In an I, exploitative way. I, I might have, because I know they do the final show, right? And at the end, they're doing one show, they're playing with Cheap Trick, and the next show, they're playing with Smashing Pumpkins. And that's why it's surprising to me that at that point, you guys can't at least get a tour bus for your final month. But I know that their last show is like their 2013th or something like that. They just got over the 2000 threshold, right. and then they finish and they, they walk off stage walking their separate ways. Is that end yeah, of the century that, that I'm correct. thinking of? Yes. Yeah, it's very poignant. 
Yeah. And uh, finally, at least to the extent of the book that I got through, although you clearly have uh, your opinions about music, I, I didn't see a whole lot of overt editorializing in the book, but without reservation oh, or has. Without reservation or hesitation, you plainly call for the longest time the finest single of Billy Joel's career. And I don't know yeah. if I agree or disagree, but why why did you choose to die on that mountain? Because it's the only one I care about. Oh. It's not the only one, but it's the one I care about the most. It's a very amazing thing that he did there. Again, I've, I used to really dislike him as a child for reasons I don't understand, and I've kind of really warmed up to him for reasons I still don't totally understand. I think because I grew up in the New York area, and his stuff uh, just evokes... I mean, New York State of Mind, There's Daily News, New York Post, it, it really does actually end up feeling like you're you're there when you listen to that stuff. But don't it, people should not discount what how hard to do uh, what he did was, which is to say, I loved this music when I was a kid and I'm going to make an album of this stuff and it's going to be as good and arguably better than the source material. I think it's a very good album. Yeah, it's a very good album. It had been nominated for album of the year up against Thriller. Good luck. But that was also a good slate of nominees. And that was Synchronicity, of An Innocent Man, Let's Dance, and I'm forgetting the fifth one up against Thriller. You know, that's a great list. Um, Billy Joel, I have had sort of the opposite of what you're describing. I liked him a lot when I was young. Glass Houses was one of the first albums I owned when I was five. And it took, you know, I got older. I My mom had a cassette of Greatest Hits 1 and 2, and I played that a lot. And I've, you know, I like a lot of the songs, but as I got older, I started to hear how bad the lyrics were. And I also started to hear how bad he is a singer, quite frankly. He's not a good singer. You know, he bellows. I like the song in Innocent Man when he hits those like bellowing bell canto. I, God, it's horrible to me. Like, don't yell. <laughs> but I, but he is a very good songwriter when he isn't like, I mean, I, I was actually asked this yesterday in another interview about, you know, it was a friend who did this and she was like, put that song, like, how do you measure that up against Piano Man and uh, we no, Piano Man's garbage. fire? And I'm just like, <laughs> because they suck. Because those two songs are ridiculous. And I was just like, we're not going to, this is not going to be fruitful because we're just going to disagree. But I feel, I mean, Billy Joel, God, I don't know. I have not, spent a great deal of time on Billy Joel. And I probably will never spend a great deal of time on Billy Joel. I'm not going to listen to his box set. To yeah. me, he's a singles artist. And when he hits it right, it's great. And when he doesn't, whatever. Yeah, no, I think that's about right. I think it, underrated was sort of how ambitious his pop stuff was for stuff that was also guaranteed to get radio play. He was definitely, he had a pretty uh, uh, a broad vision for what he was trying to accomplish. I'm sort of damning with faint praise here. If you want to, if you want to hate watch this bellowing vocal style of his, see if you can track down a Saturday Night Live oh, performance oh. of um, It's All About Soul. Oh, and God, you, just, you, feel, you feel bad for the man. Ooh, actually, oh, this may be my favorite bad Billy Joel moment. I went to, when I was living in New York, I went to IFC Cinema to see the Halston documentary. I love Halston. Halston is a fascinating figure, amazing clothes, and yeah. just like an amazing figure. You know, you, you see all these photos of him surrounded by all these cool, glamorous, interesting 70s and 60s 
figures and not just not just the models. You know, you he's he's in, inextricably tied with disco as well. Mm-hmm. But this documentary was made by somebody who didn't know anything at all about Halston, and it was horrible. And sitting there with my mouth open, and then the doc, the the director over does a voiceover going. I decided that I needed to talk to somebody who knew 70s New York and we cut to Billy Joel in a chair. And that's when I left the theater. You wouldn't even give him that? Who knows 70s New York if not? He knows, maybe he knows 70s Long Island. I don't consider, I don't think Billy, sorry, when I think of 70s New York, I think of CBGB, I think of disco, I think of all sorts, you know, I think of like the Merrill races, I think of the blackout. I think of the Yankees. I don't think of Billy Joel. Well, he was he was there even if he did not fit into any but of was Yeah, but the thing is, he didn't hang out with Halston. He mentioned Halston in a lyric. Yeah, not a very fashionable man. I'm sure he dated a couple of ladies who wore Halston, but it, yeah, that wouldn't have been uh, uh, Billy Joel's bread and butter there. I'm going to let you go. As I said, I've mentioned, I finished a quarter of the book. I will absolutely for sure finish the rest of it. Is, uh, Thank it's, you for having me on. Absolutely. It's an, it's an exhaustive but not exhausting read. It's actually fairly exhilarating to remember um, such a, a landmark year in the musical culture. Uh, I'll remind everybody you are Michelangelo Matos. And the name of the book, which is available now, is Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. Thank you again. Thank you.